All right, everyone coffeeed up now? Uh, I'm going to try and hold us to a, a 9 o'clock finish, and then I'll dismiss, and of course, we'll have a prayer and dismiss, and if you want to stay and talk after 9, that, that would be just fine. Um, I was reminded by Steve, thank you, that uh, because this is being uh, recorded, that if you have a question, I'm going to give this to you so people can hear your question on the recording. And um, I was also reminded that since we're using a lot of visual material, especially starting now, um, that I might want to describe briefly what's, what's up here, so I'll do that. But I also want to say that I have this file, this PowerPoint file. Um, I'm going to make that available to Steve, and when you make the recordings with the MP3 audio file, you'll also have the PowerPoint slides to watch along as you listen to this over and over again. <laughs> All right. Um, first of all, any, any questions during the break or anything that you, any, any burning uh, questions that you hope gets addressed either tonight or tomorrow? I heard some, some conversations with the, of a theological nature, so that's good. All right. All right. Well, let, let's, let's see, let's see what we can, we can learn a little bit of what this looks like on the ground, as they say, uh, this, 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 looking at the scripture for law and gospel and being able to separate out the two. Um, in, in theological circles, they'll often call it the law-gospel dialectic, which is a, f- a fancy way of saying you're talking about uh, something that's in conversation with something else, you know, a back and forth, a give and take. Um, that's, that's certainly what's going on here with the Lutheran approach to scripture. Um, you can't, you can try, but it ain't going to work. Uh, you, can, you can try to separate law and gospel and get rid of law, or even in some cases, in sort of more legalistic religions or, or versions of Christianity, get rid of gospel. You can try to do that, but uh, it's dangerous to, to try and get one, rid of one or the other. Um, so these two, we encounter them in scripture, we encounter them in life, uh, we encounter them in our experience of the faith. Uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be important to to. Uh, keep keep them together in a way, but still recognize that law is something different than gospel, and that we dare not confuse the two. So we'll we'll see how that works in this uh, this illustration called Law and Grace by uh, uh, Mr. Cronach, who you saw earlier. A happy looking man. This was pointed out. They they, they you know they, there's not a lot of smiling people in 16th uh, century art. All right, uh, so what's going on here? You see uh, the tree in the middle again, and you see uh, some scenes on the left-hand side, on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side. Um, uh, we're going to have to look at those and see if we can make some, some sense of it. So uh, this is called Law and Grace, and this is not the version of this, of this art that appeared on the Bible cover, uh, not our frontispiece. Uh, this was printed as a broadsheet or a poster, about you know about mini poster size. Now, what would you do with a poster like this? You know, give it to your kids when they go to college. Put this on your you know. Put it on the door of your church. Well, it was made available to um, parents, and you'd use it at home. Maybe you'd put it on the wall, or maybe you just lay it out on the table when you were trying to teach your children, who maybe couldn't even read yet, um, what was in the scripture, what the basic message of God's activity um, uh, in history was, ab- was about. And you just 
kind of lay out these pictures for them and explain it to them. So it's really sort of an ingenious tool for teaching, you know, six and seven year olds in, in, in those days, of course, you know, 12 year olds and 15 year olds, you know, public education was a brand new idea. Um, they, at this point, they probably would have had a Latin school in German and most of the kids would have been learning to read. That was a radical idea and outcome of the Reformation. But still, there were many people who couldn't read. And um, rather than explain it to them, we all like visuals. So why not put out a little poster um, that, that delineates this idea of law and gospel in the scripture in a very graphic way? So uh, here it is. And, and how would you make sense of this? Um, it all starts here. You have the fall there. Um, I did this. I did this in a uh, not the same thing we're doing tonight, but I, I showed this image um, in a in a church uh, on Reformation Sunday. I was preaching in a church in Minnesota, and um, I just wasn't thinking. I think because I work with these with 16th century art a lot, uh, a nude body doesn't nothing happens when I see a 16th century painting with a naked body on it. Um, but of course, uh, I, I noticed something was really wrong in the congregation uh, on Reformation Sunday when I kind of zoomed in on this one. All of a sudden, there's a lot of uh, you know whispering and giggling and kids and you know moms and and I thought, oh yeah, so yes, there's nudity in church. All right. So, but of course, this is. Uh, um, I'll do another aside. My students get frustrated with me when I always do these tangents. But um, uh, one of my side hobbies is, is 16th century art and how it was used to communicate uh, these new ideas and the, and the Reformation ideas. And uh, um, if you look at, at, at the enjoyment that some of these artists took in painting uh, the Bible scenes that where there was nudity, um, uh, you get the idea that uh, they weren't only interested in communicating um, uh, the scriptural stories, right? Everyone's got a version of Adam and Eve. Um, Cronach has like seven or eight versions of Adam, or Eve, uh, Adam and Eve. And um, there's, we have a nice Luther quote where Luther himself, commenting on Cronach the Elder, says, I think, uh, I think uh, Sir Cronach um, or Sir Lucas uh, likes painting the nude bodies a little bit too much. Because he also paints from the classics, and so he paints Venus. Um, it's amazing what, what this guy painted. Um, uh, but it was, it was a new thing, right? A new way to paint in a very realistic way, and they were fascinated with the, the human body. And that comes out in the biblical art as well. So we start here um, with where it starts for us humans. And so if, let's, let's say that you want to explain what law gospel is about to your children or newcomers to the faith, and you are trying to... Uh, give them the overarching narrative that you find in Scripture. Well, you're going to start um, not with the beginning, although you certainly could. You see God, uh, the Father, uh, at one with Jesus, the Son, there at the top. But uh, the idea is that you start here, anthropologically, or with humans, and you start with the human predicament, that is this um, rebellion against God, uh, this fall, if you want to call it a fall, Although uh, one of my teachers, Gerhard Ferdy, called it a fall up, right? If you read Genesis 3, uh, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent, uh, the word fall is not used. In fact, the word fall is not used anywhere in the Bible to describe this story, interestingly. Okay, it's Augustine who gives us the term fall, 
the fall to describe the story. But if you read the story very carefully, it is not a fall down, and it's not even a fall from grace necessarily. It is a fall from a certain innocent state to a new state. But what happens when they eat um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They have what the tree is supposed to give them. They have knowledge of good and evil. And then at the end of Genesis 3, uh, God says, look, the humans have now become like gods. They're like us. So if it's a fall, it's a fall up, right? Something, something in that rebellion, some new consciousness or awareness, the story is trying to tell us, uh, happened or, or befell humans. Uh, so that in a way they were more in God's image now. Um, they had the knowledge of good and evil, and you can interpret that in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, but still, uh, no matter what they have now, it's still sin. It still recognizes rebellion. And so God cuts them off from the tree of life, and uh, the humans experience the wages of sin, death. And as the story informs our lives, uh, we, too, uh, inherit this sin and our sinners and, uh, and are sort of born in rebellion to God and naturally rebel against God, naturally want our own way. That's our predicament, and we suffer because of it. And there's death because of it, and that's the fix we're in. So the story starts with the fix, and of course this is nothing new. Uh, This is how anybody who's tried to tackle the overarching scriptural narrative uh, has, has started and has described it. We start with the fix we're in, our rebellion against God and its consequences. So that's where you start. Um, you can spend some time here. Uh, um, there's a number of ways to interpret this, and unfortunately, we don't we don't have um, anyone writing saying this is how this is how you should interpret this scene. But you see Jesus, right? You see the wounds in his hand, uh, seated on the throne in judgment, and you see um, saints. Uh, you see Mary on the left and um, uh, John the Baptist on the right, uh, praying to Jesus. Now, we're in, which, in which form of uh, Christianity do saints pray to Jesus? I mean, do you, do you pay, do you, yeah, in which form of Christianity do saints pray to Jesus, right? Roman Catholic. And so you might be going, well, what's that doing in here? Well, remember, this is all on the left side of the tree. This is all on the left side of the tree. And the idea is that in this version of it, Cronach is making a comment that if you're going to pray to the saints to get you anywhere, that's not going to do any good either. And we'll see. We'll see what's at the bottom of the left-hand side, and that'll inform that. Uh, but this, this is, can, be, can be interpreted as a dig uh, at the Roman Catholic practice of praying to the saints to lessen your time in purgatory or, or to keep you on, the tra- on track to heaven. Yeah, go ahead, question. Why is the sword in Jesus' head? That's a good question. I know what the sword is supposed to be, right? Dividing, you know, um, dividing bone from marrow, you know, dividing good and bad, chaff from wheat, that this is what a judge does, or this is what will happen in the final judgment. I don't know why it's in his head. That's a good question. A symbol of, of, jud- of judging power, I, I'm, I'm guessing. I looked at it as, not as a sword, but as a fallen cross. Oh, as a fallen cross, yeah. No, I think it's a sword. Through the mouth, yeah. Oh, and that's, yeah, that makes more sense because it's his speech, it's his word that separates bone from marrow. That would make more sense, yeah. All right, now here's this scene. Some of you had it pegged. 
What's the, what's the story? Right? It's from, from Numbers 21. And the people are complaining. You know, more manna? You've got to be kidding. Um, uh, and so the people are complaining. And uh, God, Yahweh, gets a little bit fed up and uh, sends snakes. And the snakes bite the people. And the people begin to die off uh, because they're poisonous snakes. And Moses says, you really brought us out of Egypt and now you're going to poison us and, and kill us all here? Um, bad plan. Um, and so God relents and he, he commands Moses, tell Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron was really good at making statues, golden calves and things like that. Tell Aaron to um, uh, fashion a, a serpent from bronze and put the serpent on the top of a pole. And when the people look up to the serpent, when the people look up to the serpent, they'll be healed, right? That's the story. Some of you know the story. Why would you have this among the eight or nine images that are on this? Uh, the prediction and effect of Christ. Okay, right. So it's a way to take an Old Testament scene of God's mercy and healing and salvation and, and say, even in the Old Testament, you have things that prefigure God's mercy and self, healing and salvation in the New Testament. But very specifically, of course, uh, you all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, uh, but have eternal life. What's John, John 3.14 and 15? It's, it's really interesting, uh, the context of, of that verse which everyone knows is the gospel in a nutshell. It's, you know, it's a verse that everyone has memorized. What comes just before it? Oh, I'll quote it. <clears throat> and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So um, what do you do here if you're trying to teach law and gospel? If you're trying to teach the scope of Scripture with just a few images, you say... You can see gospel, you can see God's saving action, uh, even in the so-called Old Testament, even in, uh, in the wilderness with Moses and the law taking the lead. Uh, yes, people suffered the consequences for their grumbling against God. Yes, they were sinners and were punished for sin. But more than that, God uh, had mercy and God healed and God saved. Isn't the key thing that they look, if they look at that... Right. They're healed, yep. just like we're supposed to look to the Lord Jesus. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I should have given you this microphone, Jim, so you could have preached that on the microphone. But that's the whole idea, right? Connecting this with the cross, right? Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your own righteousness. Look to Christ. Look at the righteousness being worked for you on the cross. So that's why this is in there. To show, you know, it's, Old Testament isn't just law. Old Testament has gospel as well. But, of course, in the New Testament, God does something new. And the new starts, according to this diagram, with the Annunciation to uh, the, the young teenager, unmarried teenager, uh, Mary. So this is uh, zoomed in a little bit tight. This is uh, an image of, of Mary. And she looks pretty young there. And, and um, when you see the big picture again, you'll see that there's a, there's a ray coming from heaven and that there's a dove on the ray or there's an angel on the ray uh, speaking uh, the promise to Mary that uh, she will be with child and that this isn't just any child, right? Um, and she should name him Jesus. And then she sings. So this is, this is where the story 
gets personal for all of us. This is where Jesus gets introduced. And if you're using this law and grace poster, you would say, here's how God uh, specifically and particularly entered the creation, became flesh, incarnate, um, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Why? Well, it all has something to do with the problem we humans are in, right? That's the whole idea. We're in this fix, starting with Adam and Eve, and now God is going to do something to get us out of the fix. And it begins with the Annunciation to Mary that God is going to be born into the creation. The, the broadsheet, the poster skips anything from Jesus' life. There's no miracles. There's, there's nothing like that. Um, again, sort of echoing the idea that Jesus' life is useful as an example, but certainly not primary. Right? So this, this poster, as you're telling the whole story, um, Jesus' life, though important, is certainly not the most important thing he does. Uh, it's his death which is most uh, important for us. And so this, that's why this is here, of course. Uh, you have Mary in the background. You'll be with child, and then the child, 33 years later, crucified on the cross. And what other images do you see there? You see the Lamb of God under there, right? He takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb. Um, and you see, and we'll look at this a little bit closely, what, uh, what's, what's happening out of Jesus' side? What is that? What's coming out of Jesus' side? Blood, right? Right? This is the blood coming out of the side, or the blood and water coming out of the side. If you remember, when the soldier stabs Jesus on the cross, it's a mix of blood and water that comes out of the sides, you know, probably puncturing the lung cavity and fluid coming out as well as blood. Um, and then it hits the dove, which is the Holy Spirit, and then the, the fluid coming out of Jesus' side, the watery, bloody fluid, hits the Spirit, and then it's converted to something else. We'll look at that in just a moment. Now what's going on? Okay, this is the resurrection. You see the stone being rolled away from the empty tomb. Uh, or or the, you see the stone and the empty tomb. And you see Jesus, the risen Christ, in glory. But what's going on underneath there? All right, anyone want to tell us what's going on underneath? Here, you can try it on the mic. Test, test. Want to try? No? Who wants to try What's going on underneath? Oh, I think it's Satan defeated. All right, Satan defeated. And, um, uh, you know, why isn't Satan, you know, why doesn't Jesus shoot Satan? Why is he crushing him under his feet? Because his actual judgment is to come later, but he has already been defeated. Oh, good. Okay, that's good. All right, the, uh, the judgment will come later. Um, but the idea is that Jesus has conquered death, and in conquering death, um, you can see the skeleton there. There's not just, um, there's two figures there. You see the skeleton, and then there's this, the, uh, the creature, the serpent, um, uh, being crushed under Jesus' feet. So the resurrected Christ uh, crushes the power of sin and death, and uh, even the devil. But of course, this is supposed to, the, this depiction here is supposed to remind you of a little detail from Genesis chapter 3, from the fall story. Now, what's that little detail? Right, God comes to the garden and he's wondering, what's this you've done? And, the, you know, uh, did you eat of the, the apple? And, and Adam says, uh, well, she made me do it. And Eve goes, well, the serpent made me do it, you know, passing the blame. Um, and then God says, uh, well, we can't have this. And so he starts meeting out these curses. And before he gets to Adam and Eve, 
I shouldn't double up here. Before he gets to Adam and Eve, he's got a curse for the serpent. And what's the curse for the serpent? Twofold. Right? The first one is um, you're going to crawl around on your belly from now on. And the second one is that, the, you, that you will bruise the head of a descendant of the woman, but he will crush you under his feet. Right? And so um, the rabbis weren't quite sure what to make of that, and they've made all kinds of things uh, of that uh, before Jesus. But, of course, Christians latched, uh, latched onto that one pretty quickly and saying there in the very beginning you have... Uh, this prophetic announcement of how a descendant of Eve is going to crush the, the tempter, the power of Satan. Yeah. To what extent are all these uh, images, are they Lucas Cranach's own interpretation of theology, and to what extent might Lucas Cranach have actually discussed this with Martin Luther and agreed on this with him? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, what, what we know about Cranach is that... Uh, um, uh, he, he was a good friend of Luther's, and you know the table talks that we have with um, Luther there in the monastery in his later years, you know, sitting down at the meal or with a glass of beer or whatever, um, and with his students around him and other guests um, around him recording what he was saying. Cronach was a, often a guest at those talks as well, um, being contemporary with Luther in age, uh, almost the same age. Um, so it's it's very likely that Cronach um, learned a lot from Luther and was in conversation with Luther about some of these theological ideas. What we don't know is if Cronach said, you know, I want to make this poster, um, you know, how should I draw it? But but it, the, the the art really comes from him. Um, I don't, we just don't know how much consultation, direct consultation about what he should draw happened. But obviously it was, it met, with Luther's approval because it found its way on top of Bibles and was printed in Wittenberg widely. I think the most, the, the most you can say and the most important thing you can say is this sort of visual depiction of the scope of Scripture, law and gospel, um, was the way that the Wittenbergers, at least, agreed it should be depicted visually. So there's, it appears all over the place. So it had sort of the community approval. I think we can at least say that. So he's crushing the powers of sin, death, and the devil under his feet, the risen Christ. That victory was won with the resurrection. And right now we're just kind of, um, the idea is we're playing this out until the final judgment. So you got that much. Well, there's the whole picture again. And, and there you can see, you know, on the one side, on the right-hand side, you have the, the, the part of the narrative that has to do with Jesus, including the prefiguring of Jesus on the cross in the Old Testament, the story from Numbers 21 and the serpent on the pole. So that's what's going on on the, uh, all that stuff about Jesus, of course, is on the right side of the tree. Well, what's going on here on the left side of the tree? I think this is probably the most intriguing. Let's uh, zoom in on that. My goodness. <laughs> what do you see? Okay, uh, you see, let's see, uh, you see uh, on the right-hand side, you see Moses with the Ten Commandments, and he's uh, pointing to the commandments as he stands idly by, not, not lifting any, any kind of helping hand uh, to the poor guy uh, who's, who's running headlong into uh, the flames where people are, are, are suffering and wailing and, and gnashing their teeth. All right, so there's Moses on the right-hand side, pointing to his uh, commandments 
on the stone tablets and just watching as this guy is being driven headlong into the flames of hell, perhaps purgatory, but, but a place you wouldn't want to spend much time at least. Uh, and then if you look at the top of the illustration, what, what's going on there? Who's, who's holding the sword? Death itself, right? And then next to death, again, the devil figure. So you've got the death and the devil uh, kind of uh, uh, driving at the, the tip of a spear, uh, the sinner toward uh, the fiery flames, toward uh, death and eternal destruction. And uh, Moses, and behind Moses, the prophets are just watching it all happen, pointing to the Ten Commandments, the law. Well, my goodness, what are they trying to say with this? Real loud. Law is ineffective in bringing salvation, right? If you are trying to make yourself right before God um, by fulfilling the law, by being a good person, by trying your best, um, by finding more to do, by volunteering at the soup kitchen, by going to church, by reading your Bible, by um, spending a Friday evening listening to me, uh, any number of things that you think you might do to get yourself on God's good side and to get God off your back, uh, this is saying you got another thing coming. Uh, the law is no way to make yourself righteous. You can go ahead and try, but you can try all you want. Um, in the end, you're just going to be running in the opposite direction of God um, at the spear tip of the law. Uh, this is the effect of the law, right? So what they're, what, what, they're, what they're illustrating here is what Lutherans have called the second use of the law, and that is uh, your realization um, through the law and through the consequences of the law that you are hopelessly unrighteous, uh, hopelessly um, unable to make yourself right with God through the law. First use of the law, we all like that one, that is to, you know, make society possible and keep, uh, keep chaos from happening and, and make for an orderly society. You know, the first use of the law is so uh, your neighbor doesn't harm you and you don't harm your neighbor. That's why we have laws and people um, enforcing laws. That's why God created the law. But because of sin, there's an, another reason, and that is um, to show us our sinfulness, our hopelessness in our sin, and our need for a Savior. And so that's what's going on here. Um, you see this second use of the law. So there's Moses's, the second function of Moses, as it were, and that is to show you what awaits you if you try to make yourself righteous before God by the law, any kind of law. Okay? Yes, sir. Uh, the question is, what about all the people who lived before Jesus came? And there's some material about that in Romans, right? Um, this is a good question. Um, uh, were the people who died before Jesus came, are they susceptible to some other um, system or law? And of course, that's why we have a last judgment, so that all those uh, who have died before and after um, will kind of be in the, in, the, in the same courtroom, as it were, right? And and so it doesn't matter before or after. Jesus' entry into history is for all history, before and after. When do they get the chance to Oh, when do they get the chance to believe in Jesus? Well, that's a whole other question, right? Um, what is faith? What is believing in Jesus? And uh, how, um, uh, you know, Abraham, in, in Genesis 15, you know, Abraham 
Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. Well, his faith isn't in Jesus per se, but his faith is in God's word and God's promise that I will make of you a great nation, right? So even though it doesn't look like it to Abraham, you know, my wife still can't get pregnant and you're going to make me a great nation and give me as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. You know, Abraham doesn't say, oh, you're full of it and, and walk off. Abraham believes God and that's credited to him as righteousness. So what is it, faith, right? Before Jesus, the idea is that faith is trusting in God's word and that could have taken many forms, I suppose. Uh, but in the Abraham story, it takes that specific form of trusting God's promise, even when it looks like there's no way the promise is going to be fulfilled. It's a good question. So you've got the law here, and uh, at the hands of the law, um, a good outcome does not await you. Um, the law is good because it orders society, but the law also has this sort of negative effect of showing us um, our, our utter hopelessness and helplessness in making ourselves right or in getting ourselves out of the fix we're in, this problem caused by sin and death and the power of the devil. Well, there you got it. That's the, uh, let's see. That's the whole thing. Uh, the whole scope of scripture, if you need to know the basics, uh, the, those early Lutherans, those Wittenbergers were saying, this is what you have to know. You have to know what the law does and how, you have to know what fix you're in and you have to know that the law has limits. It can't get you out of the fix and you have to know what will get you out of the fix and that's Jesus. So now we go to the last thing here. And you see uh, the direction of the stuff coming from Jesus' side. And it hits the bird, the Holy Spirit, and then turns into something else and covers the, uh, the, the sinful human on the other side. Now what's going on here? The blood, the watery blood coming out of Jesus' side and baptizing, right? <laughs> baptizing the sinner um, with the Holy Spirit. Um, and the sinner, what's his posture? We'll zoom in a little bit here. You've got John the Baptist pointing to Christ, right? Don't look at me. There's one greater than me. Um, you've got the preacher saying, look at Christ for, for, for salvation. And you've got the, the uh, sinner there naked before God, uh, hands outreached, grasping uh, in a, a posture of faith, Right? That's the idea. That's going to get you out of the fix. That's, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Um, or what shall we say? That keeps the biblical story from being a tragedy. Is the sinner's, uh, is Christ's action on the cross, his blood shed, made personal by the Holy Spirit, and that personal activity by the Holy Spirit resulting in the believer's faith, um, reaching out, grasping, Christ's work on the cross in faith for salvation. Pretty simple. You don't have to read the Bible at all. You can just memorize these pictures and you've got the whole story. That's the idea. But it's interesting, right? Law and gospel. Um, salvation, you're standing before God, all has to do with Jesus Christ and your trust in Christ's uh, activity and word. The law has a limit here. And one of the clear limits is don't look to the law to save you. The law, in the end, is only going to show you uh, the the eventual outcome of what you, what's going to happen to you when you try and save yourself because of the law. So in a way, this image does not have a whole lot of good to say about the law. We'll say some good stuff about the law uh, tomorrow. You were going to ask a question, well, Jim. There's a, a lot of teachings 
within the Christian church that, you know, that the Old Testament uh, is all law. That the, the uh, Old Testament is all about law. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the New Testament is about Jesus and love. And uh, you made the comment that but there's also law in the New Testament. Yeah. And I, I don't know, but I know that Jesus said he endorsed the law. Uh, and right, right. Not, not one iota shall be removed from the law, right? Everything, every single dot and tittle of the law still holds. And he fulfills the and law. And he fulfills the law, right, on your behalf. Um, so you don't, have to, you don't have to fulfill the law anymore. We reached out to you know, Christ's faith in Christ. Through that, we have Christ's fulfillment of the law. And yet, the law is still ours. It's still active and for a reason. And the reason I want to suggest is um, um, uh, not to please God, but to uh, uh, fulfill the needs of the neighbor. And so that's really the last thing to say here. And then we'll kind of flesh this all out tomorrow um, see how this works with baptism and with the Lord's Supper and with how we treat other Christians who you might not agree with. Um, here you've got this tree in the middle. Uh, it's all barren on the one side and it's bearing fruit on the other side. Uh, and this is just a little hint, a little hint about uh, the Lutheran confidence that faith is not just for the sake of faith. Faith is not just for the sake of, you know, uh, avoiding the flames or avoiding eternal destruction. Faith is for the sake of producing real good fruits. That is not, not good works that you might do so that you can get God off your back, but real good works, the kind of good works that you do spontaneously out of love uh, on behalf of your neighbor and, and love for your neighbor on behalf of God and love for God. So you, you see that this is on the right side, the Christ side. Uh, if you want good works that produce fruit, if you want fruitful living, uh, that's one of the results of faith. So uh, this is the, the little subtle way of saying uh, the law still is fulfilled, but not because Moses is holding it up and threatening you with the saints of hell, uh, the, the flames of hell. The law is still fulfilled in Christ through the believers um, in a different way, not by compulsion, but by love, by, uh, by the work of the Spirit in you, um, producing fruit, fruit that lasts, like it says in John 15. So we'll say more about that fruit then uh, tomorrow. Um, it's nine o'clock now. Is there anyone? I'll take one question and then we'll, I'll dismiss with a prayer. And then if there are more questions, we can stay and talk some more. Anyone have a question? Okay. Did, did you have to say anything, Lori? Uh, okay. Yeah. The only thing... I would like to add to it is may we please thank Hans Wersma for oh, that's nice this evening. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thank you very You're much welcome. for being thanks. here. You're welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, please stand and we'll uh, pray the Lord's Prayer together. Let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.
Amen. All right. Good night. We'll see you in the morning.